This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. This is Episode 4 in the Saga of Raban Sama. After their six-month rest at the oasis of Khotan, Barsama and Marcos renewed their journey west. Cautious of the fighting taking place between Kublai Khan and his cousin Kaidu, their guides escorted them around the regions of greatest threat, lengthening the journey by several weeks. They stopped at Talas, a town in what is today Kyrgyz. 500 years before, Talas was the scene of one of the most important battles in all of history. The forces of the Tang dynasty smashed into those of the Arabian Umayyads. Talas was Kaidu's headquarters now, and while the two monks had before been leery of encountering the treacherous would-be Khan, they now decided to present themselves before him. They were careful to avoid any hint that they were emissaries of his enemy, Kubla. They were just two monks on a spiritual quest, pilgrims to the birthplace of their faith. Though they already had the precious letters patent from the great Khan, they knew securing another passport from Kaidu might grease the wheels of any future local chieftains who aligned with him. So after placing a blessing on Kaidu, they requested the precious letters of passage. Sama and Marcos's passage across this region, embroiled as it was in war, proved typical for east-west trade and travelers at that time. While groups found all kinds of causes to fight over, ethnicity and religion being foremost, when it came to trade, such distinctions were often set aside in favor of an apolitical posture that was willing to overlook the reasons for war. This allowance for trade across such a wide spectrum of people and faiths was due to the realization that trade was a major source of income to the various kingdoms. Harming or hindering it in one area meant diminishing it across the board. So, with rare exception, trade was regarded as apolitical and off-limits. Leaving Talus, the next portion of Marcos and Sama's journey was yet another challenge to endure. They headed southwest into Khorasan in northeast Persia, skirting present-day Afghanistan. Crossing rugged mountains and deserts little better than the Taklamakan, which had just about ended them, they lost a good part of their baggage. The mountains soared so high that the travelers were beset by intense cold, thin ice, howling wind, and the ever-present threat of avalanches. This was also an area fraught with local warlords who survived by robbing caravans. The problem of brigandage was so severe, the Mongols had set rules for how caravans were to protect themselves. Disheartening to all who traveled here were the frequent skeletons of camels, pack animals, and humans found regularly along the path. But this was the last leg of their journey from the far to the Middle East. They finally arrived in the first of their destinations, Persia. But they were likely shocked at what they found. This eastern region in Persia had suffered terribly at the hands of the Mongols. If a city surrendered when first approached, well, it was spared. But if it resisted, the entire population was wiped out. Many cities of this region had thought to resist the invaders and had suffered for it. But as the invaders moved southwest into the heart of the greater Persian plateau, word spread and the cities capitulated. The Mongols then recruited skilled craftsmen and the educated into their burgeoning bureaucracy. They drew from Persian Muslims, Jews, and Christians. The year was 1280 when Barsama and Marcos settled into a monastery on the outskirts of Tus, the Mongol capital of Khorasan, 
in the northeast frontier region of Persia. Tus was the birthplace of several historical notables, as well as the burial place of the great caliph Harun al-Rashid, whose reign and court provided the literary base for the famous Arabian Nights. Tus was often the scene of conflict between Shia and Sunni pilgrims, because not only did it hold the tomb of the Sunni al-Rashid, it was the burial place of the eighth Shia imam, Ali al-Rida. While Islam was the predominant religion in Persia at that time, there was a sizable population of Jews, Buddhists, and Christians as well. Prior to the arrival of the Mongols, the majority of Muslims ruled these minority faiths with a begrudged tolerance. After the Mongol conquest, the Muslims protested that they were treated no better than the others. They believed their vastly superior numbers ought to gain them advantages. But the Mongols enforced their standard policy of religious tolerance. Muslims worried when they saw large numbers of Nestorians promoted into high office in the Mongol system. But the Mongols weren't showing a religious bias. They were merely filling the ranks of their civil government with the most educated, who happened to come from the highly literate Nestorian clergy. Having recouped their strength in Tus after their arduous passage across Central Asia, Barsama and Marcos renewed their journey west. Resupplied by the local Christian community, they set out across Azerbaijan, skirted the Caspian Sea and the Dashti Kavir Desert, then headed toward Baghdad. Baghdad was headquarters for the Nestorian Church, home to their great patriarch Mardena. But if they had hoped to meet the grand leader of their church, they didn't need to travel to Baghdad to do so, because Mardena was visiting Azerbaijan at the same time that Sama and Marcos were passing through. He granted them an audience in the Mongol capital at Maraga. The Ilkhan Hulagu had made Maraga a gem, building a large observatory there for the famed astronomer Nasir al-Din Tusi. This observatory was a mecca that attracted Muslim scholars from all over. It housed several ingenious astronomical devices, and its growing body of discovery and work became the envy of both the Chinese and European scholars. The attached library held 400,000 volumes. So impressive was this center of learning that wealthy Muslim leaders and merchants established grants to fund it. The city provided a fitting stage for the meeting of the two Chinese monks and their church's leader. Marcos and Barsama bowed before him and amidst many tears expressed their gratitude that they'd made the difficult journey to see him and carry the collective greetings of his people and churches in the Far East. Mardena was deeply moved by the expression of their faith their journey had demonstrated. He was surprised to hear that the two monks had met with and been sent on their way with an official endorsement by the great Khan Kubla. When they said that their ultimate goal was to visit the birthplace of the faith, the patriarch assured them that God would see they made it. After a few more days of meetings with Mardena, they asked for permission and blessing to visit sites of interest to their faith. There were tombs, churches, and shrines to visit in and around Baghdad, the current headquarters for the Church of the East. Its oldest and most revered site was in nearby Tesaphon, which they also planned to visit. In Baghdad, they were given a tour of the great Church of Koki and the ancient monastery of Marmari, named for the early 4th century missionary who planted the church in Tesaphon. Barsama's account lists the sites they visited in the many towns between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. But besides cataloging these shrines, he gives little description of what life was like for the locals. 
Other records tell us that Baghdad of the year 1280 was a seething cauldron of tension between Muslims and Christians who were universally the Nestorian brand. The previously mentioned Catholicos, Mardena, had stirred the pot by inciting his flock into much hostility towards Islam. When an apostate Christian converted to become a Muslim, Mardena ordered his execution by drowning in the Tigris River. The Muslims responded by trying to assassinate Mardena and burning down his house. Three years later, when an attempt was made on the civil governor's life, Christians and Muslims blamed each other. So local Nestorian congregations were greatly encouraged by the arrival of the two monks as it seemed to signal support from the great Khan in the Far East. After all, the monks did bear his august approval in that tangible form of the letter's patent that they carried. Nestorians may have been in the minority, but Kubla had sent them succor in Sama and Marcos. The two ended their tour of the Nestorian sites at the Marmichael Monastery in Arbil. Having been so long away from the monks' life and practice, they decided to renew it by staying in the monastery as just simple participants for a season before setting off on the last leg of their journey to Jerusalem. While Mardena had originally applauded and affirmed their plan to travel to Jerusalem, he changed his mind. He'd seen how the two monks had generated hope and much-needed vitality to the increasingly moribund church that he presided over. So he wrote them a letter, berating them for thinking only of themselves in entering the monastery at Arbeel. How dare they seek personal peace, he said, when their brothers and sisters were beset by dangers at the hands of their Muslim neighbors left and right. Mardena was the Catholicos, the, the patriarch of the Nestorian church by selection of church officials. But the Mongol ruler reserved the right to affirm such elections. It had been 15 years, and the Mongol Ilkhan Abaka still had not officially endorsed him. Abaka was a Buddhist, but he was married to a Christian woman. Because Mardena was a well-known antagonist and rabble-rouser in matters involving majority Muslims, Abaka balked at granting Dena the official title. He knew to do so would risk riots from his Muslim subjects. Mardena saw in the two Chinese monks the lever to move the Ilkhan. After all, they enjoyed the favor of the great Khan, did they not? Serving as Kubla's unofficial envoys, their council could easily be passed off as a directive from the Far Eastern court. So, guilted into it, Sama and Marcos left the monastery trek back to Baghdad and met with Mardena. They agreed to approach the Ilkhan if Dena would provide them an escort who could return him the credentials verifying his title and office as they continued on their way to Jerusalem. Though the monks had previously treated Mardena as a near godlike figure, recent shenanigans had unmasked him as grasping, power-hungry, and self-serving. Because of the way that they'd been treated by other Nestorian leaders all the way back in China when they first set out, they didn't trust the Catholicos to keep his word. They knew if they secured the treasured credentials, they'd make themselves too valuable a resource to let go. So their intention was to hightail it out of town as soon as they got Mardena what he wanted. So eager was he for the Ilkhan's recognition that Denha agreed. Eager to be on their way and out of Denha's grasp, Sama and Marcos traveled to Tabriz, Abaka's capital on the fringes of Azerbaijan. So, 
what would the Ilkhans say to their request for the recognition of the scheming Mardena as Catholicos? Well, we'll find out next time in part five. Yeah.